Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And we are joined today by the great Robin Holland. Do you want to say hi, Robin? Hi to everyone. I'm so delighted to be here. I've been listening to the podcast, so I'm excited about being a more interactive part of the conversation today. I am a member of St. Philip um, Episcopal Church in Columbus. I am a retired uh, Columbus City School teacher. I taught for 35 years. I currently work with the Columbus Area Writing Project through the Ohio State University. I'm one of the co-directors. It's a uh, professional um, network for teachers um, who teach writing. And I also do a lot of work in my church. And you're an author, too. Yes, I am an author. I've written a professional book for teachers about writing, and I write poetry. Well, we're so excited to have you join us today. Why, and thank you for the yeah, Incredible. I wish we'd been thoughtful enough to ask you to bring a poem in advance. That would have been wonderful. Well, I'm working on one for Exodus, so maybe one of the later... Okay, we'll invite you back Later to ways. hear the poem. That's amazing. Um, okay, well, let's just jump in. Today we are getting to uh, one of the more exciting parts of the book of Exodus. We are beginning the plagues. and Plagues. We have Harry Potter-esque magical battles. Uh, it's all here, people. So, who wants to start reading uh, from Chapter 7? I can begin if I you like. Please. And Robin, what, uh, what text are you reading from? I'm using the um, New Revised Standard. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall okay, let's uh, let's jump in there. We don't get very far, Robin, as you'll uh, uh, soon discover. Um, so this phrase, I place you in the role of God to Pharaoh. Uh Carl, do you have a different translation for that? I have set you as God to Pharaoh, so it's essentially the same. I have set you as God to Pharaoh. So I'm not sure it is the same, because I was looking at another translation earlier that simply said, I have set you as a Lord mm -hmm. to Pharaoh. Uh, and mine says, I place you in the role of God. When we look at the Hebrew, there's nothing about the role of or uh, place you like a God. It, none of that is in here. Uh, and I think it's really interesting how much discomfort the translators have with this notion here. Netaticha Elohim lefaro. Yeah, I will um, uh, put you as God to Pharaoh. Elohim lefaro. There's no, no modifications here. Okay, so it's not a simile. It's not a metaphor. It is you are Pharaoh's God. You are Pharaoh's God. And now, you know, I, we can say that this is a um, uh, metaphor here, clearly. I don't think God is suggesting that Moses is actually becoming a God. But the commentators are so uncomfortable with this, or the translators are so uncomfortable with this, that they can't, they can't even include that. One explanation I read, um, and I'm not sure if, if it makes sense in this context or not, uh, but is, is, this, is the process where God speaks to the prophet, the prophet speaks to the people in the same way Moses will speak to Aaron and then Aaron will speak to God. So the person from whom the information is originating is Moses, which puts him in that same role. So, but if, if it's translated, you are God, I think there's a difference, whether it's you are like God or as God or you are God. I think there's a difference. And Daniel, what does the original text say? So I... You know, it's interesting. We've got um, the, the verb here is sort of I'll place you or I'll make you or I will um, put you or I will give you as. Um, but then it is Elohim Lafaro, God to Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting. It doesn't even use sort of the generic lowercase g God word that you can use in Hebrew. It uses the uppercase proper you know, I, I, we'd write this as G dash D in English, uh, in the Jewish world. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now Rashi's point, and I think this is what you're bringing up, uh, Robin is that this is entirely about the role that, uh, Pharaoh, Moses is being put in a role where he is the, uh, judge and, uh, jury and I guess not executioner, but, uh, um, whoever, 
lays out the punishments, um, that that is his role here, as opposed to Aaron, who will be the translator the prophet, of everything, the right. prophet. Right. The, and the other way might be more like we view Jesus as an incarnation. It may be that Moses is this way that Pharaoh can see God. Um, hmm. and That's so what it, I was going to say. Yeah, I like that theological implication um, because one of the ways we do see God is through each other. But I particularly like the fact that it's exclusively to Pharaoh. You know, I, I, I mean, it's an interesting thought to wander around through the day and be like, I will have a moment today when I will be God to one particular person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <gasps> hmm. And of course, we're playing with notions here, too, that Pharaoh himself was seen as a god. Right. And so if, if Pharaoh understands gods to be fundamentally human, then this is an issue of translation too, of putting it into the idiom that he can understand. And if he's God, he may not want to talk to anyone that's much lower than God either. Oh, interesting. Ooh. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Puts them in terms of social status. I hadn't thought of that. Huh. Wow, that's great. So this is a status negotiation. Uh, God is saying to Moses, don't worry about your status. Your status is my status. And I, th I think, too, in, in, in terms of all of the insecurities that Moses has expressed, that maybe um, this might be more for Moses than for Pharaoh. Well, and it, it, it is an answer to the question of chapter 6. So last week we talked about how chapter 6 begins and ends with Moses' crisis of leadership. And none of the answers he's given in chapter 6 help, but I can see how this would help, right? God is saying, stop worrying about this crisis of leadership because in this circumstance, you, you are, are me. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Shall we continue? Yeah, please. We're still on one. <laughs> so yes, starting at two, you shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to tell the Israelites to let the Israelites go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So what is this idea of hardening a Pharaoh's heart? It's a tough one. I, it seems to make Pharaoh simply into a puppet. Like the drama needs Pharaoh to be evil and not to give in, no matter how many plagues come. And therefore there's this action that, that makes Pharaoh do that. It's, it's problematic. I think, I think so. We've got some free will issues. Yeah. And, and if we think about free will, it, it changes the story. If Pharaoh does not have a choice in this situation. So it really bothers me that all of the language and all of the translations makes it appear as if his heart is hardened uh, externally rather than, than something he's choosing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about that verse uh, in Genesis 4 where, where God is talking to Cain uh, when Cain is so angry because his uh, sacrifice is not accepted. And God has a talk with him and tells him, well, if you do well, you, I mean, you can do well. You can make a different choice. Now, we know Cain doesn't make that choice. Um, so, so, Daniel, what is the Jewish perspective? Uh, what do the texts say about this hardening of the heart? Could Pharaoh have made a different choice? So lots of discussion on this. Um, and at the uh, Passover table every year uh, where we have our, our Seder and sort of richly retell this story, this is always the uh, 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 most contentious discussion, I would say. Uh, but the... Uh, you know, the, the first piece here, I think, from a Jewish perspective is to look and say, what exactly does it mean to have your heart hardened? Uh, and the classic Jewish answer is it is a closing off of empathy. Uh, you know, the ancient rabbis don't have a word like empathy, yeah. but what they say instead is it is uh, closing your eyes to the image of the divine that is the other human being next to you. So in the Christian perspective, it would be uh, similar to uh, ignoring the Holy Spirit or quenching the spirit. Do you, is that right, Carl? That makes sense to me. Um, but you know as much as I do, Robin, <laughs> certainly. Well, I, I don't know. It just, I, I just, I am so, I am, 
I, I feel like we get into trouble uh, with our relationship if we want if we have God making us puppets and if we don't indeed have that free will. And um, one of the commentaries that I read uh, that we're reading during Exodus, Terrence Fredheim's commentary, suggests that the plagues have to happen on a grand scale, not just for Israel, not just for Pharaoh, but for the sake of the entire world, everyone has to see and everyone has to begin to recognize and acknowledge that God is God. In that context, I can see the role that Pharaoh plays, but I still, I guess, want him to be able to make a choice. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So this is going absolutely from, as we say, Kodesh Lechol, from the holy to the profane here. Uh, but I'm thinking about sort of the talking heads on the 24 hour news channels. Yes. And I'm thinking about how often you have one person on there who seems reasonable and another person who seems absolutely unreasonable. And I sometimes feel like the goal of the reasonable person is not to convince the unreasonable person, but to convince everyone who is watching that the other mm. person is unreasonable. Oh, that makes huh. sense. Um, and I wonder if that's at some level what they're implying here. Um, now we're clearly, um, doing a good job of avoiding the question of free will here so far. Um, what does it say, uh, if Pharaoh doesn't have a choice in this though, in terms of how we understand our world, uh, does, does Christianity traditionally have a view? What is the Christian view of free will here? That the, we have a choice in all things and all matters at every moment. I believe that. I'm, I'm not sure what the Christian doctrine says, but I believe that. But I also believe that God knows what choice I probably am going to make, if, hmm. if that makes sense. I, I sort of like that, the, the probabilistic God. Yeah, yeah. The, the metaphor that I always use when I'm teaching, I teach the adult Sunday school class at St. Philip. And one of the metaphors that I always use is I lay my Bible open and I turn to a particular page and I say, this is where we are on this particular page, chapter seven in Exodus. And on this page, I can make choices based on what I know came prior and what I think will come. But God's above the book. And so he knows the whole book, even though I can make my choice on page on, on, on Exodus seven, I can make my choice um, because he's outside of time is the way I see him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And we, we have talked about that, that idea that God is outside of time. And I think that's a beautiful way to put it, Robin. Well, but um, it doesn't solve anything in our, in our class. We go round and round and round. It comes up almost every session about, yeah. Uh, predestination versus free will versus what God allows you to choose. It's not, I mean, that's my metaphor, but that doesn't really settle anything. Right. And that's, that's where the difficulty in answering your question, Daniel, comes from is that Christianity is broad and vast and there yeah, are course. many, many different ideas. Uh, I, my understanding of the classic Augustinian point of view is that we have free will precisely because it is our free will that explains evil in the world, in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that goes all the way back to Genesis, to the garden, to Adam's choice to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Though, doesn't that become particularly problematic in a case like this, where Pharaoh's evil is the result of his lack of free will, if he's being... If he's having his heart hardened from the outside. That's the part that of the sense? story that bothers me. And that's why I keep going back to that notion of Timshel where thou mayest. Thou, and that, and thou, you have a choice. But I also think, um, as one of the Midrash suggests, that you make that choice so often. You ignore the Holy Spirit so often that you can no longer hear. Not that it's not there. Not that you don't have a choice. But you have kind of calloused your heart mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, calloused your mind. And, and so therefore you don't see, even though the opportunity is there. I don't know. Well, and that's ultimately where most of the Jewish commentary goes, you know, Rob Soloveitchik, one of the most important uh, rabbis of the last, I don't know, century or so uh, picks up on that. And he, he looks at the fact that the first five 
plagues, we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And it's only in the last five plagues that the grammar changes. And it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, and so Soloveitchik picks this up and says that this is simply the nature of sin. It is the nature of doing wrong. Uh, that the first time we do something wrong, there is that ping that tells us we are doing something wrong. And it gets quieter and quieter and quieter until we don't even realize that what we are doing is wrong. Exactly. It just becomes totally absent. Um, I wonder if it would change the way we were discussing this if we stopped thinking about Pharaoh as an individual human being and thought of him as a stand-in for for dominance and evil. Um you know, because and and we use this language all the time. Brueggemann uses this language. Walter Brueggemann, in particular, you know, that Pharaoh is the domination system, the system by which people uh, have their free will stripped from them, are broken, are put to use for uh, nefarious purposes. Hmm. And you know, when I think about the domination systems of our own time, uh, if you step back from them, they seem insanely unreasonable, right? Um, and you get the sense that the people who are caught up within them, uh, probably the people who benefit from them the most, uh, are their hearts are hardened because that is that is how the system works. Um, so, thinking of an example, I mean, I admit I am a great beneficiary of many evil domination systems. Um, and if I had a truly soft heart or if I had a heart that was truly attuned to suffering in the world, I would make a lot of different choices throughout the course mm. of my day. I, I simply would, you know, like if I, if I could see the hands that sewed my shirt and saw that there were children's hands, uh, in some other country, I could not put that shirt on, you know, if that image was just visible to my mind. Um, but I do put that shirt on. And and so in a way, I think we can talk about the hardening is, of Pharaoh's heart as um, our own captivity. So, so it deals with the systematic and systemic, uh, economic and um, social systems that we're dealing with. Um, and Brueggemann talks about this competition in capitalism as opposed to covenant relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the the problem with these uh, domination systems, these Pharaoh-like systems, is that their evil only becomes evident when it's taken out of the realm of the everyday and, and made uh, more and more blatant by events, you know, so any, like, like happens in any protest movement, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and, and other people deliberately chose those towns where the racism would be most extreme and violent to go and protest in because they were trying to reveal the domination system for what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wonder if that was their hardening of Pharaoh's heart, right? Like if they were saying, here is where where the grotesquerie of Pharaoh will be most revealed, and so we are going to do the thing to spark a reaction to reveal that grotesquerie. So, so I want to take a sort of um, human-centric read of verse 3 here for a moment. Uh, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and marvels in the land of Egypt. I think from a theological frame, this is really problematic, obviously. Like, right? What does this say about God and God's willingness to um, increase suffering in the world for the sake of God's own grandeur, right? I think that that becomes sort of a um, what we call shot reading, a straightforward reading of this uh, verse right here. But I wonder if we flip this around and read this much more from a humanist perspective, uh, the idea that it is the suffering that is in the world, the hardening of Pharaoh's hearts that is the opening that religious people are supposed to walk through. Right? We, we are supposed to look at these things as religious people, as opportunities um, to bring glory to our God. Wow. I mean that obviously in a pretty metaphoric way there, but um, what do you think, Robin? It harks back to that uh, discussion you all had last week uh, where you were talking about those, the beginnings of those actions and bring out 
uh, becomes one of those actions where God mm. brings the companies out. And so it does lend itself to the explanation you're, you're putting forth where, um, this company by company is coming out of the land. Um, and you also had a conversation last week about the, the two sides or the two ways that God manifests himself in terms of that mercy and in terms of that judgment. And I think we see both right in that verse four that we're looking at um, where there's a judgment there for the hardness of heart. But I am also mercifully bringing out these people who have been um, the uh, recipients of this, the actions resulting from this hardness of heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do we want to keep reading? Please. Um, I'll read. Um, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And I just have to stop there and say that I just think it's interesting that in the middle of all of that, um, we're making note of their age. Um, And I'm wondering if that's to locate them in time, uh, was the age to give credibility. Uh, I just thought it was kind of an odd sentence um, to, to put in right there in the midst of all these important things going on. And by the way, here's how old they are. I, you know, Carl, you or the two of us had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about how our associations with social justice movements, particularly today, are really focused on young people. Uh, right. And certainly if you look at, uh, um, black lives matter protest, uh, you'll typically see groups of young people. Uh, but I've really, I've been trying to pay attention since then. And what I notice over and over and over again are that the sort of wisdom leaders of these movements are people who are older, mm-hmm. Um, that they may not be the people who are always in the streets. They may not be the people who are, uh, always on the news, but the people who really are exerting sort of the wisdom, spiritual leadership of these communities, uh, are older people. And they would be the ones who had the, the experience. If we think about Moses, he's got this experience in this very court that he's now returned to. Uh, he was raised there. And he's also got under his belt now this experience in the wilderness with Jethro. And then he's getting ready to embark on a whole different wilderness kind of experience. So I'm wondering if, if, if we're locating this to help us understand one credibility, one, they've got the experience and that God can use older people. God does use older people. We don't have any references to how old Pharaoh is. We only know that he's not the Pharaoh we read about for Joseph, but we don't have any idea how old he is. Mm-hmm. So, I, so that to me also points out that this kind of just an odd statement to tell me how old they are right here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's go on. I'm just, I'm keeping an eye on the time and just want to make sure we get to uh, plagues and magic. Okay, where where did we leave off? Uh, I think we left verse 9. Verse 9. Okay. When Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Okay, so it, it, what is going on here? <laughs> it is so mysterious. It's um, it's like, well, like I said, it's a Harry Potter type magical duel, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a battle royale. Battle of the snakes. But why... It, Yes, it's uh, a duel and it makes for sort of great drama and a great scene. But from a theological frame, isn't this kind of silly? Right? Aren't, aren't these, I, I, I think back, my my sort of um, philosophical Rebbe is a, a guy who died about a thousand years ago named Rambam Maimonides. And uh, he points out that there is, 
there's something problematic if you take God really seriously with all of the little, little miracles, right? These are, in fact, here they almost quite literally are parlor tricks. But aren't they? So what does that mean? Aren't they also designed to show power? So, and then if we think about the notion that I believe on the front of the Pharaoh's um, hats or crowns, isn't there a snake? Yeah, cobra. Mm. Yeah. So if we're using this ordinary object to turn into snakes, um, and even though you can do it too, mine are more powerful. And I think we get to the point where, okay, these, what we're doing isn't really a parlor trick because we eventually get to the point several chapters on where no longer can Egypt's magicians do what Aaron is doing. Mm. So I, I think it just establishes, you know, we are superior. The power is superior. The God is superior to you. And we're starting with this little stuff, but it's getting ready to get big real quick. So I did this story with uh, Sunday school kids a couple of weeks ago, and we used it to ask the question of what wisdom is. Um, and the answer we came up with is that uh, we all, you know, have a certain amount of control over our world and our environment and our lives. And we go along thinking that we have a lot of control and then we come face to face to the with the end of our control and wise people recognize that and look for help from other people and from God. Um, and so from, for us at any rate, as we were having that discussion, it seemed like these stories of Pharaoh's magicians um, being able to do what Moses and Aaron can do at first are really meant to teach that lesson, to say to humanity, you can do some things and we're not going to deny that but you can only go so far. Right. And I also think it teaches us not to trust in those abilities that we have and not to use them simply to have a battle, a a kind of a showing off uh, battle like that. But the, the amazing thing is that when you get to the next verse, none of this impressed Pharaoh. Hmm. His heart is still hardened and he's still not listening. Even though he's beginning to see that his magicians are not, able to stand up in a substantial way to Aaron and Moses. Now we have a good Midrash about this too, from Midrash Rabbah. Uh, Pharaoh began to mock them and crow at them like a chicken saying to them, so these are the signs of your God. It is usual for people to take goods to a place which has a shortage of them, but does one import brine into Apamea or fish into Akko? Are you not aware that all kinds of magics are within my province? He then called for children to be brought from school, and they performed these wonders. Right. Egypt is a place where everyone can do these miracles, evidently. Yeah. Um, and I like that fish into Akko. It's a little like coals to Newcastle. You know, like why, exactly. why bring things to a place where they're already in abundance? Um, so Pharaoh's heart is hardened, according to this Midrash, uh, because he believes he has an abundance of magic and miracle. Uh, yeah, but you missed the, the last line. Oh, sorry. Uh, said Moses, to herb town, one carries herbs, which I think is um, a, a much less dramatic way of saying something like, uh, um, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> but how? Okay, I don't understand. Um, that you compete first on their terms. Ah. Okay, I want that on a t-shirt. To, 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 to herb town, one carries, carries herbs. herbs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it can go along with our uh, Magic Donkey t-shirt, right? It can, I, and it's probably the name of this ep- episode, to be honest. To, to herb town, one carries herbs. I like that. Okay, so going on, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He is not impressed by snakes, even if they do swallow his own magician's snakes. Okay, shall I keep reading, or does someone else want to read? I... You're doing wonderfully, if you don't mind. All righty. We're starting at 14. Yeah. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand by at the riverbank to meet him. Okay. I have to pause for a moment. I'm sorry. Your translation in 14 is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened? Yes. Interesting. What does yours say? 
Well, it's not what the Hebrew is. Uh, my translation says Pharaoh is stubborn. Uh, but the, the Hebrew here is kaved lev, uh, like a, a, a heavy heart. It's a word that can also mean honor, actually, but it's clearly not being used in that way. Uh-huh. But stubborn, uh, I think, is a, a pretty good idiomatic translation here, but different than Different than hardened. Heart. Yeah, and, he, and I only mention that because hardened is such a key idea here yeah, that to translate different phrases that way. It's interesting. Yeah, Alter says Pharaoh's heart is hard, and in the footnote also translates it Pharaoh's heart toughened. Hmm. Okay. So maybe it's a progress. Is it? Could it be um, a progressive verb? Where uh, you know we have already had him mentioned with the hardened heart. So now maybe it's in thirteen. It was harder. Now it's getting a little harder. Could that be the interpretation? Uh, okay. I like that. Right. I mean, clearly they're playing with something with the, um, some sort of something happening to a heart, right? The, the previous one was literally hardened, uh, um, hmm, I like that. Yeah. I didn't realize because of my translation that there was a difference. So now that gives us something to think about. Mm. Um, and a nice reminder of how much we miss in translation. Yes. 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he was going out to the water. Stand by at the river to meet him. I think we read that. And take in your hand the staff that was turned into a snake. Say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. So for a moment, looking back at 16 for a second, I I just I think it's interesting here that we've still got let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. This is not, at least in the way that it's being spoken of, a cry for absolute freedom. This is a cry for religious freedom. And um, now we're getting to the Bloody Nile. Uh, and I may have said this before on this podcast because it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But um, Paula Jackson's point that the river is already bloody uh, is really important to me and has really changed my thinking about this plague. Uh, her point being, what do we know about this river? We know it's where the male children of the Israelites have been killed so it's a genocidal river but even without that it uh has been full of the blood of the workers the blood of their toil Mm. um so the river is already bloody there (laughs) nothing's going to change that um and the evil is hidden until this point but all moses is really doing or aaron actually i think is um revealing revealing what is already there but hidden Hmm. 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 Huh. God, that's beautiful. I really like that. I'm going to hold on to that. And it works with the Hebrew too here. The the Hebrew for turned into blood is not quite clear. You can also read it as um, like uh, turned over or flipped over or um, it's actually the same word that's used for a latte in Hebrew today um, huh. because it's something that has the – evidently – I get this all confused, but evidently – in Israel, they pour the milk and the espresso in in the opposite order that they do everywhere else. So it's called a cafe hafuch, which means to uh, um, separate it or split it or upside down it or something like that. Uh, and that's the same word we've got going on here. So then that goes along with Carl's uh, or Paula's view, per Carl, that yeah. um, the, the river's kind of revealing what's already there, the evil mm, that's I love already that. there. Hmm. And, Love that. and it, I guess it's the same point I'm making about Pharaoh's hardening of heart, too. Like, that is also more of a revealing of the systems of domination and evil that are already there. Mm. Um, and, and I wonder sometimes whether that's now what the story is. You know, we, we think of it maybe as like a story of progression into the wilderness, but it could also be a story of of unveiling the way the systems of the world and how broken they are. And that would kind of go back to the the notion that Fredheim puts forth that the the 
importance of the plagues and these wonders and these miracles is not just for Pharaoh, not just for Israel, but ultimately for the entire world. And if we remember, because I think we tend to forget uh, as we look at worldwide religions, we forget that there used to be um, regional gods. And so as far as Pharaoh's concerned, this is just a regional god. Right. Um, you know, where we are, we would have the God of Grandview, the God of Westerville, the God of, of, uh, uh, East Columbus. We would have all of these different gods. And so if we look at it, look at it that way, this is perhaps God's way of saying, you know, I'm the God of the whole world. Mm. Right. You know, not just this regional God. I am the God of the whole world with a capital G. And of course the Nile is seen as a God or as a source of godliness or something like that to the Egyptians. So an attack on the Nile is exactly that. Hmm, nice. Yeah. So this is not only an unveiling of systems of dominance and systems of, of evil. It is also an unveiling of the true nature of divinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if God created everything, he would also have power over that creation. Yeah. So, all right. So where are we? 19, uh, 19 I think. 19. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over its rivers, its canals and its ponds and all its pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Shall I keep going? Yeah. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and his officials, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the river, and all the water in the river was turned into blood. And the fish in the river died. The river stank so that the Egyptians could not drink its water, and there was blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. So there's a great midrash here uh, that talks about a... uh, um Jew and an Egyptian who are trapped in one house together and there's a barrel full of water. When the Egyptian goes to fill up a pitcher, he'd discover that the pitcher was full of blood. But when the Jew would go, he discovered uh, that it was full of water. Uh, And interestingly, this becomes an apologetic. You know, a number of Jewish sources are really concerned at the idea of uh, the Israelites having looted the Egyptians uh, when they leave Egypt, though I think there's an argument to be made that it was a just looting. Um, but regardless, uh, this Midrash becomes an apologetic for it. And it says that this is where the Israelites got all the resources they needed for the wilderness. That during this time period, then since only Jews were able to draw out water, ah. they would then sell the water to the Egyptians, uh, thus building up the capital they needed to survive in the wilderness. <laughs> hmm. That's interesting. And I, I guess I also we could have, and it doesn't apply here, but I guess in later chapters when we actually get to that section, my understanding is that God made the Egyptians want to give their things uh, so that they could be rid of the uh, Israelites, which is kind of a different interpretation. There's something more here in this. Uh, can we finish this little section about the, the plague? Uh, because there's, there's something more to say. Starting in yeah, 22. Uh huh. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians had to dig along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed. Well, let's stop there, actually. Um, So this is affecting everyone. It is the Egyptians who are suffering here. And this, too, I think, is just deeply wise about the nature of evil Um, in that when we participate in these systems of dominance, we are harmed by them. Even the people who seem to be benefiting from them are actually deeply harmed by them. Yes. And I think Um, the text is interesting in that in view of the conversation we just had, it says that all the Egyptians had to dig along the Nile. It doesn't mention what the Hebrews or the Israelites are doing. And so that kind of supports the Midrash that you were sharing, Dan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and yet, Pharaoh goes back into his house. We're not told that he's digging along the Nile. So the question is, does he have water during this moment or not? You know, is this is it his people who are suffering because of his stubbornness, but he himself is not? And the difference I think that makes um, is, you know, it just points to the way that we can push our suffering off onto other people who we have power over. And I don't even think sometimes it's so much power. I think that everything affects everybody. If we are all here together, we're all part of this creation, we all drink from the metaphoric Nile, um, when something happens to it, no matter who did it, it affects all of us. Hmm. Yep. Hmm. And so I, it's curious that the Egyptians are not mentioned. It doesn't say all the people. What does the, what does the Hebrew text say? I, every Egyptian had to go around uh, to vote. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, around the Nile, the waters of the Nile. And it says every. Uh-huh. Uh, that's very clear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mine says all, but it just, it separates the Egyptians and makes no mention of what everyone else Hebrews is doing who is not Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And it also yeah. reminds me of the first miracle that Jesus did, uh, which involved water um, and which he turned it into wine, which hmm. we as Christians b- view as blood when we are taking communion. So it's kind of a Repeat oh, Robert. in a positive wow. way. It's redoing that miracle, but yet oh, in a yeah. way that um, saves instead of kills, I think. I have never thought of that before, and that is beautiful. Wow. Well, that's the first thing I mind. think of when I, you know, because he did this, this water miracle. It's, it's, if water is the source of life, and is it so important in that part of the world? It, like, right now, it's important in our world. I think it's important to look at what 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 are we doing in the Bible with water? Um, and and John positions that it may or may not have been Jesus's first miracle, but John positions it as his first public miracle, anyway, uh, first recorded miracle. Uh, we're going to have to have you on more, Robin. This is awesome. Well, You're I'm awesome. enjoying it. I don't know how much I'm adding, but I'm enjoying oh, it. <laughs> a huge amount. Uh, okay, so that's so interesting, Robin, because the other reading I've, I've uh, encountered of this is that, in a way, the plagues are an undoing of creation, uh, that the ten plagues set out to deliberately undo or complicate the Genesis creation story. And I really like that, although I'm not sure I always follow exactly how that happens. But, of course, creation starts with water, right? The, uh-huh. the water is being – well, I mean, it starts with light, but okay. But very separated. soon after, yeah, the waters get separated. You don't, you don't have human life without that separation of the waters. They get separated, but it's always interesting to me. Waters pre-exist creation. Yes. Yeah, right. They're the chaos yes. that – oh, you're so right. Yes. So what do we make of that? Is this – is this an undoing? Is this saying, God saying, look, I can, I can take you back to chaos? Well, you know what? If you look at Psalm 78, and I think 105, um, a couple of weeks ago I was reading this, and, and I went and looked, and it's true. They only named seven plagues. Seven plagues. Yeah. And in, in, uh, when we were in our adult forum, the Exodus, uh, Father Charles was kept referring to seven plagues so much so that I went back and looked, okay, I thought there were 10. Are there really 10? And yes, Exodus lists 10, but those other sources tend to list seven. So is there uh, a Jewish tradition of looking at seven, which would hark back to uh, the creation? I will confess to having never heard anything about this before. I've opened up Psalm 78 now to look through it, but um Huh. I, I'm going to dig into this. I will report back for next week's episode. Interesting. I, I just note, because we've had sevens, multiples of sevens occurring in this. Like when we get to this last verse, seven days passed after. We have things happening in, in, in sevens. Um, sevens in Judaism tend to be the most significant number of completion. 
okay. or of wholeness, mm-hmm. right? Seven uh, obviously represents uh, creation, but seven also is the main marker of time in the sense of weeks go yes. by. Uh-huh. Um, hmm. Yeah, this is great. I love this idea. Uh, yeah, so if you could investigate that, Dan. I will investigate amazing. and report back. Yeah, why are there seven plagues in Psalm 78? And I'm looking at it for the listeners right now. It looks like they are named in verses 44 uh, through 51. So why seven there and ten in Exodus? And uh, let's create for next time. Let's let's create a list of of the seven that are in Psalm seventy eight, and then see which are left out because that well, the that might be, might be as interesting yeah. as the inclusion. Okay, stay yeah. tuned for next week. Absolutely. I want to talk briefly about one more midrash uh, before we end this week's episode, and that is Mishnah Rabbi Eliezer. Yes. The first three plagues, blood, frogs, and lice, were brought on by Aaron, for God said to Moses, the waters which protected you when you were cast into the river, and the soil which protected you when you buried the Egyptian, it is not fitting that they should be afflicted by your hand. Therefore, I shall afflict them through Aaron. Huh. Um, it's a charming story to begin with, but I think it also gets to that connectivity that you were talking about before, Robin. You know, that um, there seems to be a kind of base understanding here that human beings and God are not the only characters in the story, that in fact, creation uh, is a multitude of characters in its own, it's which also, it, I'm it sorry. It goes along with the Christian view because we, we think about Genesis and the curses that are in Genesis three. It's not just man. It's the whole creation. And then later on, when God makes that covenant with um, Noah and the rainbow, it's not just assigned to Noah and the people. We tend to be very uh, people oriented, but the whole creation that's assigned for the whole creation um, and then in Romans, Paul talks about the whole creation groaning, waiting for mm. salvation. So there's this, there is this connection. I had never thought, though, literally of this connection with Moses and the water as a reason for why um, he would not be doing these particular uh, miracles or wonders. I think that's an interesting connection. Mm. Well, there's also a connection to the Psalms, and I, I'm not going to be able to remember which Psalms now, but many of them talk about the hills skipping like lambs and yes. things like that, you yes. know? So there's this kind of um, wild personification of, of nature uh, going on really throughout Scripture. Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, Jesus there, tells the, the uh, Jews, you know, if you don't cry out, even these stones are going to cry out. So I wonder as a Jew, Daniel, how does that kind of, uh, how does, how do those words affect you? I, I mean, I, I think it's sort of a, a beautiful idea there and it's sort of, I mean, it brings me back to what we've talked about, Carl, uh, in Exodus that none of this story of liberation from oppression can begin until the Jews first cry out. Mm. Oh, um, Yeah. Right. It, it requires, and, and it, this actually, it tends to be the rabbinic read. And I, I keep using the word humanist. I don't mean that in the sense of, um, sort of atheist or agnostic, um, but really in a human centered, human agency centered, uh, approach to this text, uh, which I think is a, a very traditionally Jewish approach, which is to say that this is a text that is supposed to change us and inspire us and move us. And it's not a text that's just supposed to cause us to think. Right. Um, And that, in a way, brings us back to that question of Pharaoh's hardness of heart, which we haven't answered and simply won't be able to answer, um, which is how much agency does Pharaoh have and how are we to read or understand Pharaoh? 
I um, think it also behooves us too to think about ourselves. We tend to always identify with um, the um, characters or the you know the in the story who are the most sympathetic. So we identify with the Israelites, no matter who we are. We identify with the Hebrews. We don't want to be Pharaoh. And I led a quiet day with the ladies of St. Mark uh, this past Saturday. And one of the things that I was asking them to do, we were working with parables, the power of politics of and, and personal perspectives. And one of the things that I asked them to do was just not take the character that you always think about. So, for example, in the prodigal son, you're not him. Who are you in the story? So in this story, I think it begs us to ask, you know, who are we in the story? Mm-hmm. You know, and are we Pharaoh? Because I think that sometimes we are. Um, and and I think that also changes how we read this story. Um, because there are times when our hearts are hardened as well. Um, yeah. And what are the consequences read, of that? Can we read Pharaoh's hardening of heart as essentially his blindness to his own privilege? Yes. We can. We can. And I think the other thing about the Midrash in particular uh we might ask who we are in the story and we might always want to be Moses, but we should understand in our own lives that there are certain moments because of certain considerations when, when we don't get to be the hero, you know, we don't get to do the magic. Uh, it's going to be Aaron who stretches out his hand out of, uh, out of consideration for the feelings of the water, which might not be something that usually stops us from trying to take a position of prominence in our, in our story. Uh, but I'm glad it stops Moses. And in this day and age, maybe we need to be thinking a bit more of the feelings of the water, metaphorically. You know, uh, we've had water a lot in our news this past year or two. And so maybe it might behoove us to read this story this way, thinking about the perspective of the water, uh, putting ourselves in someone else's place besides the, the, the heroes that we traditionally identify with. Mm, beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, um, let's finish up. Uh, you know, one thing I think we definitely need to do is take some herbs to Herb Town <laughs> on a regular basis. Um, and I wa- Robin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I thank you for the opportunity. It was a great this is, delight. This has, been, this has been wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you. And I think you may actually be scheduled to come back next week. So we'll get more of you in the in the very near future. Okay. I'm looking um, forward to that. Lost in the Wilderness, A Priest and a Rabbi and Friends, Explore Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogart and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness is part of... Uh, Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find my work at prayerbookart.com. Uh, Daniel and Robin, where should people find you? You can find me at deeperwritingrobinholland.blogspot.com. I, and you can find me on the uh, DSO Big Read website. And if you find me there, uh, send me an email and I'd love to uh, come out to your church. All right. Thank you all so much. <laughs>